know you have. You're now tuned in to Marcus Reyes and just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darvetta has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Star Wars Warriors. Kyle at your service. On with the ultimate treat for all you Star Wars maniacs. Star Wars Audio Archives. Strap yourself in and prepare for a hyperspace journey that will make your heart do a Wookiee war of excitement. We're about to undertake an intergalactic escapade that will leave you breathless as we explore part five of Fatal Alliance. Are you ready to blast off? Then let's get started. Lorin was halfway to the vault when Yima intercepted her. He was standing in the deserted passageway ahead with his hands upraised in the universal signal to halt. She would have pushed right past him had he not been backed up by five Weakway and a dozen axe-wielding Gamorians. I see the missing envoy has returned, he said, taking in the group behind her with baleful red eyes. The pirate too. My mistress will be pleased. Lorin didn't have time to discuss the situation. The thought of Shigar facing Dao's driver alone filled her with urgency. It might already be too late. Her attempts to hail him on the comlink had prompted nothing but silence in reply. Thank her for her concern, she said. We're returning the envoy to his quarters now. Are you? Excellent. You may have heard the, uh, occasional disturbance in the last hour. There is nothing to worry about, I assure you of that. But it would be advisable for you to remain in the high security wing until told otherwise. Sounds like you're under attack, mate, said Jet. Has Fa'athra made his move at last? The Twi'leks smiled tightly. We have many items of great value stored in the palace, so attacks are not uncommon. It's not coming from outside, said Lorin, growing impatient. It's the Mando I warned you about earlier. He's after the Cinzia's Navicomp. Impossible. No alarm has been raised in that sector of the palace. That's bound to change, and soon. Hefting her rifle, she went to continue on her way. Not so fast! The Twi'lek sidestepped in order to block her path. The weak way backed him up. You are going the wrong direction. The envoy's quarters are that way. Really? It's easy to get turned around in here. I don't believe you're turned around at all. I believe you know exactly where you're going. The Twi'lek wasn't smiling now. You are not a registered visitor to this palace. The kidnap was a distraction, giving you time to go about your true business. We found the trail you left in our security systems. The sabotage is another distraction. What is your business now? Are you all in league or just opportunistic collaborators? His cold gaze swept the group before him. Lorin didn't like where this was heading. Look, she said. We're not planning to steal your precious things, but someone else is, and we're trying to stop them. I'm serious. Dow Striver will be in and out before we get there if you don't step out of my way right now. Don't make me make you. The Twi'lek didn't flinch from her ultimatum. You admit that you are heading for the vault? That's what I just told you. And yet you insist that your motives are pure. As pure as they'll ever be. Then you won't mind if I advise the Imperial Envoy to meet us there. Whatever, just get moving. That's all I ask. Yima signaled his entourage, who fell in around her and her companions. Once the way was clear, she set a brisk pace while Yima growled in his native Twi'lek into a comlink. 
Behind them, the Republic envoy put up a sustained display of bluster. I resent the implication, he said, that this is a conspiracy of any kind. If anything, it is I who should be suspicious. I'm the one who has been kidnapped and had my escort neutralized. I've been imprisoned and tortured under the roof of a host whose servant now calls me a criminal. You'll be lucky if we stick around at all for this sham auction of yours. Yima ignored him, and so did Lorin. Still nothing from Shigar. No alarms, she said to the Twi'lek. And in the middle of all this fuss, too? Doesn't that strike you as odd? Yima looked at her for a full three seconds. His only other response was to pick up the pace and begin barking orders into his comm leg again. Ula maintained his diatribe long enough to ensure that his point had been made. It wasn't even his point. He was play-acting the loyal Republic envoy in a difficult situation. Wasn't that what one should do? Ula didn't know. He was light years out of his depth and heading farther out by the minute. He wished they really were going to his secure quarters rather than rushing headlong into danger. All that stopped him from asking to be exempted from the coming action was the thought of how Lorin Moxla would regard his cowardice. She didn't seem the type to brook anything of the sort. He couldn't take his eyes off her. Everything about her, from her beaten-up armor to the black tattoos across her cheeks, captivated him. Don't even think about it. Ula glanced at Jet. He was also watching the remarkable woman who had come from nowhere to lead their mismatched ensemble. What do you mean? She's no good for you, and vice versa. Ula flushed. He'd had no idea his instant fascination with her was so obvious. What are you talking about? He said, lowering his voice so no one could overhear. You know as much about her as I do. I know she's faking it, and that's about the only thing you two have in common. Again, that sly hint that Jet thought Ula was more than he was saying. Or less, if his tone of voice was anything to go by. What exactly are you suggesting? Me? Nothing. I'm just making conversation. That rapidly became difficult. Their pace was increasing by the minute. Soon they were jogging alongside Patanin and the security detail, with Weequay loping long-legged beside them and Gamorrean struggling along behind. More palace security personnel joined them. Nikto's and Hook's mainly, forming an ever-growing caravan heading toward the vaults. It was hard to see what lay ahead past the Twi'lek and Lorin, but it looked like there were further guards waiting for them. And more than that besides. At the entrance to the security airlock lay a scene of utter demolition. Walls had fallen in. The ceiling had collapsed. Tons of stone and reinforced ferrocrete lay between them and their objective. Evokai slaves and security guards picked at the rubble, getting in one another's way such as their haste to clear a path. Conflicting orders flashed back and forth. Yima hurried into the mess, trying in vain to impose order. This is outrageous, announced a high-handed voice over the hubbub. It was a tall, long-nosed man in imperial uniform, shouldering his way toward the Republic entourage. If you've had a role to play in this fraudulent affair... We've as much to lose as you, snapped Ula, wishing he could take his fellow Imperial aside and reveal to him the secret role he was playing. There was no need to argue, except for appearance's sake. And are as much in the dark! From the other side of the rubble came an explosion, crisp and floor-shaking. Ula put his hands over his ears and backed away. 
two enormous dirt-moving droids shouldered forward to plow through the mess. Stay here, Loren ordered him, and he was happy for the moment to obey. She joined Yima in the wake of the heavy lifters, clearly determined to be among the first inside. The Twi'lek didn't disabuse her of that intention. Once again, Ula admired her confidence. What on Korriban did Jet Nebula mean that she was a faker as well? A cry went up. The barrier was breached. A cloud of smoke and dust rolled over those assembled. The sound of combat came to them, fierce and pitched. Lorin yelled something over her shoulder. What did she say? Ula asked Jet. Something about a Sith. I didn't catch all of it. Ula glanced at the Imperial envoy, who studiously avoided everyone's gaze. Yima waved for reinforcements. A line of Weequay moved in, followed by Patanin and his opposite number on the Imperial side. There was more confusion as all three columns tried to squeeze through space for one. Ula lost sight of Lorin and craned for a better view. Why don't you go closer? asked Jet. I, uh, don't think that would be safe. Do you? I think it's all relative right now. Changed, Ula headed toward the widening hole. Jet followed, leaving his droid to watch the entrance. Seeing Ula moving in, the Imperial envoy followed, not wanting to be left out. The tunnel through the rubble was crowded with people. What lay at the end of it was not clear through the smoke and dust. Blaster fire cast strange lights into the haze, and Ula distinctly heard the sound of the Mandalorian's jetpack. On top of that scraped the volatile hum of lightsabers. They passed a twisted sheet of metal that might once have been the security airlock's outer door. The smell of ozone was overpowering. Down, sir! cried Patana, not seeing him. Ula let himself be dragged to a relatively sheltered position behind a wall of rubble. From there, he still couldn't see the action, but he could see the back of Marin's helmet. She was crouched next to Hima, sighting along her rifle. Her voice came clearly across the sound of battle. Still no alarms, eh? Ula didn't hear the Twilix's reply. A massive explosion brought down most of the ceiling, deafeningly loud. Ula put his back to the stone shield and covered his ears with his hands. Ash and debris rained on him in thick waves. He closed his eyes tightly. When he tentatively removed his hands, an uncanny silence had fallen. All he could see were people jostling for position, as pale as ghosts. Rubble continued to fall from the roof. Beside him, Jet slowly inched his head upward to view what was going on. His expression changed to one of astonishment. What the bricks is that? Before Ula could look for himself, a voice spoke, female and full of rage. We do not recognize your authority! A chill went through him. He had heard that phrase before. Shigar stood at one corner of an equilateral triangle, with a young Sith and Dao Striver occupying the others. The Mandalorian hesitated, clearly surprised to see them both. It's a small galaxy, reflected Shigar. You know him too? The Sith's hostile facade cracked just for an instant. You should both have let it be, said the Mandalorian. This doesn't concern you. You were killing people on Coruscant, Shigar said. Of course it was my concern. Stay out of this. The Sith snarled. He's mine. I've beaten you once already. B-1. 
Being killed won't honor your mother's actions. The young woman turned a shade of red, brighter even than her hair. The Mandalorian raised his left arm and blasted her with his flamethrower. Chigar ducked and rolled, wondering about the scene that had just played out. Fate had delivered all three of them to the same place at the same time. They were all after the same thing, whatever it was inside the vault. And they had a narrow window before the huts realized what was going on and brought the entire weight of the palace's security forces to bear on them. Striver would want to move quickly and decisively, yet he had stopped to chat with the Sith girl. Why? It was clear that all the talk of her mother had been employed to distract her. Her rage was fully inflamed now, which would make her stronger if she survived the next few seconds. Shigar juggled several options. Retreating to the vault and leaving them to it was one, but there was only one exit from that position, meaning that he would have to face Driver eventually, and the Mandalorian had bested him too. Better to fight now, when there was at least a chance that the Sith might serve as a distraction. Flames roared after the girl's cartwheeling silhouette. Shigar came at Striver from the opposite side, swinging his lightsaber to deliver a crippling blow to the shoulder. Striver raised his arm to block, and Shigar's blade skated along the powerful Mandalorian armor, leaving a bubbling welt but not penetrating. A hatch in Striver's pack opened, and a collapsible shock stave fired into his hand. Shigar came in for another strike, and the shock stave stabbed at his chest, blasting him from his feet. On Striver's other side, the Sith burst from the flames, lightsaber upraised and hatred blazing in her eyes. Her leap took her over the flamethrower's deadly jet and was timed to deliver a spearing thrust to the Mandalorian's domed helmet. He ducked with startling speed for one so big and thrust the shock stave up at her. She cut it in half, kicked him off balance and returned for another slash. Shigar was back on his feet circling to take Striver when an opportunity arose. Again, the flamethrower burned, but the element of surprise was lost. The Sith girl easily batted aside the flames. Instead, Striver cast a razor net at her. She ducked its piercing barbs and attempted to shock him with lightning. His insulated suit took the charge and grounded it into the floor, blackening and buckling it. Shigar took the chance to force-push Striver to his knees, but the Mandalorian was as solid as a mountain, and he had other weapons he hadn't revealed yet. From a thigh hatch, Striver produced a stubby pistol. He pointed it at Shigar and fired a single time. Shigar dodged, but not so quickly that the fringes of the shot missed him completely. He was tossed like a leaf into the wall and slid to the ground, temporarily stunned. Driver turned the weapon on Axe, who dodged more effectively than the slow-witted Jedi had. She had recognized the weapon instantly and knew how dangerous it was. Disruptors were outlawed in every civilized part of the galaxy. She wasn't surprised to see one on Hutta in a Mandalorian's gloved hand. Axe also knew that handheld disruptors were effective at short range only and could manage a bare handful of shots. If Striver kept firing and missing, the weapon would soon be useless. So she kept moving around her enemy, practically running on the walls of the battle-blackened security airlock, goading him on by hurling broken glass at his joint seats. Twice, he narrowly missed her, and even the fringes of the beam sent powerful shockwaves through her flesh. Only her rage kept her going. She used the pain to fuel the dark side. 
The third time he fired in their little dance, the fifth shot overall, she barely felt its after-effects. The weapon's charge was dying. Grinning with triumph, she turned her circling run into a headlong launch. Time to bring the fight back to him. He met her attack with a vibroblade aimed at the throat. She screamed, trying to drive her blade through his armor with all the strength of her muscles and willpower combined. His buzzing blade was so close, it brushed her skin, raising a fine spray of blood. But still, she didn't let up. The Mandalorian was reeling back on his feet from her attack. This was the best shot she'd ever had. His jetpack activated with a whine. Suddenly, they were moving jerking upward as though lifted by a giant puppeteer. Taken by surprise, Axe lost her grip and fell away. Striver rose above her on twin jets of fiery exhaust. She rolled to avoid their intense heat and covered her eyes from the glare. Striver stopped when he reached the domed recess that had once held the tinkling chandelier and hovered there, punching commands into his weapon systems. Axe had just enough time to realize that he now had the advantage of height before a strong hand gripped her wrist and dragged her aside. A stream of missiles struck the ground, exactly where she'd been lying. The Jedi had saved her, and she wrenched herself from him, even as she felt a twinge of gratitude. Surely he hadn't done it out of the vile goodness of his heart. No, she told herself. He knew he couldn't defeat Striver on his own. It was either save her or be the next to die. Concussion missiles blew her and the Jedi into the security airlock's inner door. They separated to avoid another round, which blasted the door back into the antechamber, exposing the four vault doors and the hole through which Axe had entered. She had a split instant to note that one of the vault doors was glowing bright red. Then a rain of blaster fire came from an entirely different part of the room, and she realized that someone else had joined the party. The Huts, presumably, had noticed that the treasure was at risk. Before she could take advantage of the shift in the battlefield, the Jedi launched himself at Striver, deflecting missiles away from him as he came. The missiles exploded into the ceiling, bringing down huge swaths of masonry on all three of them. A large chunk struck the Mandalorian, dropping him from his superior vantage point. Axe dodged a slab large enough to crush a bantha and sought her bearings in air suddenly thick with dust shadowy figures danced around her. Tasseled Weakway, officers in Imperial uniforms, Gamorians, and more. But Striver was nowhere to be seen among them. Either a stunned silence had fallen, or her ears were overwhelmed by the most recent explosions. Red light played across the battlefield, then died. Just light, no concussions. Axe blinked and turned to find the source, remembering as she did the glowing vault door. Not a random hit from the Mandalorian's weapon systems, as she'd initially assumed. It was clear now that the door had melted entirely away, releasing the vault's precious contents to all comers. No one was breaking into the vault, however. That much was immediately apparent from the splatters of molten metal on the antechamber floor. It was rather the other way around. Shigar moved closer, weaving around the newcomers to the fight. They had provided an unexpected but very welcome distraction. Yet he worried now about the danger they were putting themselves in. Striver was down, but not out, and the Mandalorian had wiped out an entire cell of the Black Sun Syndicate on Coruscant single-handedly. Shigar, his head still ringing from the near miss with the Disruptor, knew that Dal Striver would stop at nothing less to achieve his goals on Hutta, if he had to. For the moment, though, 
All eyes were on the vault. The hut security measures had failed. Someone had melted the door and gained access to the inside. Shigar wondered if they had come up the floor of the vault, much as the Sith had attempted. But if so, why not leave that way? Why go to the trouble of melting another exit? The pool of molten metal that had once been a door cast a bloody backlight on the figure that stepped out of the vault. It didn't look like any kind of being Shigar had seen before. It stood two meters high and seemed at first to be an ordinary biped with skinny arms and legs of equal length. Then it unfolded another pair of arms attached to its midriff, spaced equally between shoulder and hip joints. It bore no resemblance, however, to insectile species like the Geonosians or the Killick. Its body was a perfect hexagon, stretched vertically. There was no head. Black sensory organs dotted the central body like the eyes of an arachnid, gleaming in the light. Apart from those organs, its skin was silver. He couldn't tell if it was a creature in an environment suit or some kind of construct. With unerring steps, it crossed the pool of molten metal on feet that were duplicates of its hands. It turned 180 degrees, revealing a back that was identical to the front. When it reached the wreckage of the inner door, it stopped there and swiveled slightly, taking in the ruined security airlock and the beings it contained. The Mandalorian, the Jedi Padawan, the palace guards, the Twi'lek, and Sith. We do not submit to your authority! It screamed, dropping smoothly into a new posture. The body became a regular hexagon instead of a stretched, almost rectangular torso, and its legs bent into a crouch. All four of its arms splayed out to target different parts of the room. Shigar instinctively tightened his grip on his lightsaber. He lacked the foresight ability of Master Satil, but every cell in his body screamed in alarm. Whoever or whatever it was that had broken into the hut's vault, it wasn't going to walk away quietly. The hands of the creature spat darts of blue fire that ricocheted off armor and lightsaber blades and exploded whenever they struck flesh or stone. The Sith girl stood at the focus of their initial attack, but when she went down, the fire became more indiscriminate. Bodies dodged in all directions, either hit or seeking cover. It wasn't easy to tell which. The room's tortured walls surrendered still more of their mass to dust and gravel. Shigar stood his ground, reflecting the unfamiliar energy streams back at their source. The creature's silver skin re-reflected them in turn, setting up a resonant stream between him and it that only became more intense with each pulse of fire, then doubled in intensity as it added an extra arm to the attack. Shigar braced his feet and held on, determined not to give in before it did. The air hummed and crackled with energy along the pulse's combined path. He had never seen anything like this before. Finally, something gave. The stream dissipated with a flash sufficiently violent to blow the creature backward into the antechamber. High energy sparks ricocheted around the security airlock, making everyone duck again. Shigar dropped his lightsaber, not his guard. His arms felt like they had been hit with hammers. The ringing in his ears was louder than ever. But until he was sure the thing was incapacitated, he wasn't going to relax one iota. A second creature stepped from the vault's steaming interior. It didn't say anything. It just screamed on fire. Shigar jumped as high as he could to evade the converging energy pulses. 
staccato blue streams followed him, tearing a shallow, meter-wide furrow in the wall and ceiling. He glimpsed Lorin's face below him. She was standing in full view, pumping shot after shot into the second creature's body. Its silver skin dissipated them like raindrops, and he began to worry that he wouldn't be able to outrun the creature's vengeance forever. A trio of tightly spaced concussion missiles from Dow's driver saved Shigar from bisection. They turned the antechamber into a furnace, finally cutting off the deadly beams. Shigar landed on a section of collapsed roof, winded and singed, but largely unharmed. The creature backflipped, landing on six legs, and stood up again, this time on its hands. It looked exactly the same as it had before. Behind it, the first one crawled out of the rubble in which it had landed. A third creature stepped out of the vault. Shigar's stomach hollowed. Get everyone out! He shouted to Loren through the comlink before the firing started again. It's not safe in here! What about you? I'll do my best to hold them back. Why not just let them go? He didn't have a short answer to that question. Because doing so would mean admitting failure. Because whatever these creatures were, he wasn't going to let them have what was inside the Cinzia. Because he wasn't going to let things this murderous rain fire upon the hapless denizens of the Hut Palace. Just because! All right, she said. But I'll be back with heavier munitions as soon as... Everything else she said went unheard. With an ear-splitting screech, the three creatures fired in tandem, tearing the air apart. Lorin caught Yima by the leku as he ran for dear life. Assault cannons, sniper rifles, mass drivers, she said. Everything you've got, now! The twillet dithered, torn between conflicting fears of his mistress, of the things wreaking havoc in the demolished security airlock, and of Lorin. Given a choice, he looked as though he would run for the nearest ship and head for the stars. To help change his mind, Lorin raised her rifle and aimed it between his eyes. You won't get a single step unless you make the call. Yima brought his comlink to his mouth and began issuing orders. She ran back to where Sergeant Patanen lay on his belly, watching the battle unfold through the standard-issue electromonocular scope she had loaned him. He handed it back to her and said, I think they're droids. Look at the one on the left. It's been damaged. She focused the scope on the spider-like creature Patanen had indicated. One of its forelimbs had been sliced away, revealing not flesh or exoskeleton, but a mess of wires that flexed and twisted, showering golden sparks. She narrowed the field of view to see more closely. Wires, definitely. As thin as hairs and as lithe as quicksilver. Her mind cast back to the Hortec maintenance crew she and Shigar had stumbled across in the tunnels below the palace. There she'd seen silver threads as well. Before she had time to follow the thought through, Yima returned, pushing a long-barreled sniper rifle into her arms. More coming, I hope? He nodded unhappily and hurried away. She lined up the rifle, resting its weight on a protruding chunk of stone. Go for the joints, Patanen advised her. But she ignored him. The hands were doing the damage. If she could take them out, that would reduce the threat to Shigar. At the moment, only he and Striver were doing anything to stop the killer droids from getting out of the antechamber. The droids moved fast, and they didn't move like anything Lorin had fired at before. Any of the six limbs could act as a leg, 
meaning they didn't so much run as cartwheel from place to place, like spindly animated tumbleweeds firing as they went. They could also crouch with anywhere from three to all six legs on the ground, giving them a more stable base to fire from. They could even curl into a ball to protect their hexagonal midriffs. Furthermore, the damaged one demonstrated a potent kind of shield when Shigar got too close. It crossed two limbs into an X and created a short-lived circular electromirror that bent his lightsaber back into a V, almost taking off his arm in the process. He retreated, and the droid went back to firing at him. Lorin took her first shot and missed. Her second hit the forward and was deflected. Her third struck the wrist joint squarely, severing the fire-shooting hand with a reddish flash. Instantly, the droid rotated to make that limb a foot, bringing another hand weapon into play. She moved her target reticle to aim at that one next. Another sniper rifle arrived, and Patanen took up the fight. He tried the joints with little success, and moved on to the sense organs scattered across the chest of the things. The black circles reacted differently from the silver skin under fire. They absorbed everything that came at them and radiated the energy as heat. Their reflective black surfaces soon turned to red, then ramped up to orange and yellow. Eventually, one hit purple and exploded, making the droid spin around in circles for a moment before recovering. Lorin steadily picked off the hand weapons of her chosen target. When there were just two left, the droid transferred its weight to its four injured legs and hopped to where one of its fellows was trading fire with Dao Striver. The injured droid jumped onto the back of its counterpart, and the two bodies locked together. The four injured legs retracted, creating a more massive droid with eight legs, all willing and able to fire. Oh, come on, she said. Loren and Sergeant Patanin's efforts didn't go unnoticed. The droid menacing Shigar sprayed a wave of blue pulses in their direction, forcing them both to take cover. When it was over, the barrels of both their rifles were blackened, but still seemed capable of firing. Sergeant Patanin, however, had not been so lucky. A ricochet had caught him in the eye and killed him instantly. Before she could get revenge, someone tapped her on the shoulder. She turned to see Yima in three hooks, pulling in a wheeled, turret-mounted laser cannon. About time, she growled, crawling over. Here, let me. I've used this model before. Yima waved her away. His look said as clearly as words that if anyone was going to fire it in his mistress's palace, it would be him. She backed down as another wave of blue pulses converged on them. A fourth six-legged droid had emerged from the vault. How many of these things are in there? She asked no one in particular. Then the cannon was firing, driving all higher thoughts of the situation from her mind. She was a soldier. It was her job to fight, not to analyze. Dropping onto her belly, she picked up the sniper rifle again, test-fired it, and began peppering the enemy with rounds. How many of those things are in there? Hula heard Jet say over the sound of blaster fire. He craned his neck over the fallen beam and risked another look. Sure enough, another of the hexagonal droids had stepped into view. Are they in there? He asked. Or just coming through there? I'm not sure it makes sense if they have another way into the vault. I mean, if they could just turn around and go back, why aren't they doing that? Why are they fighting to get out past everyone else? Ula had wondered why they didn't just blow a new hole out, but he had soon found an answer to that. Their blue pulses knocked fist-sized chunks of stone from the wall, and plenty of them. They were lethal against flesh, too, 
but they lacked the punch to get through reinforced paracrete. The security airlock was the only route open to them. It was also the only escape route open to him and Jet, but they had been cut off from it by the reinforced beam they now took shelter behind. Between them and the exit was ten meters of open space, littered with broken glass, rubble, and the occasional body. One of them belonged to the young Sith girl, who had been the first targeted by the Hexes, as Ula had come to abbreviate them. Jet's droid watched helplessly from the other side of the room, unable to get any closer to help his master. Watch Striver, said Jet. Why? Ula had seen enough of the Mandalorian in action for one lifetime. He's held in back, almost like he's testing them. Testing who? The droids, of course. Why would he test Shigar? They fought twice already. Why test the Hexes? I don't know. Curiosity, perhaps? Maybe the Mandalore is looking for a new species of pit fighters. Nice name, by the way. Hexes. They watched as Yima and Lorin positioned a laser cannon for optimal coverage. Lorin's face was hidden by her helmet, but Ula was glad to see that she was still on her feet. Maybe that's what Striver has been after the whole time, Jet said. After all, it was him who talked about the droids before. What was that woman's name? The droid maker? Lima Zandrit. Whoever she was, he knew of her. And you said he was asking questions about her all over the place. What if that thing in Asinzia had something to do with her work? What if the Hexes are here now to steal it back? What if they were on the ship the whole time? That can't be the case. The thing you saw was too small, judging by your description. No, they must have gotten in somehow. Maybe someone let him in. Ula was watching Shigar, who had developed a new tactic against the Hexes. When one of them fired up at Striver, he hurried in low, under the blue firing limbs. In close, they were more vulnerable, and he managed to get a couple of good stabs at the body of one of them. It was listing badly to one side, and two of its limbs no longer worked at all. That Sith girl is still alive, said Jet, nudging him with an elbow. Ula glanced across the battlefield and found to his surprise that this was true. She was rising sluggishly to her hands and knees, shaking her head with a furious expression. Her hair danced like liquid flames. She looked to Ula as though she had been woken from a powerfully unhappy dream. They make him tough on Korriban, said Jet with grim admiration. The girl was on her feet now. The moment her lightsaber activated, the Hexes noticed her. Fourteen streams of energy pulses converged, and Ula had time enough to feel sorry for her before she vanished into a glowing sphere of light. With a boom, the laser cannon fired, spearing the eight-legged Hex through the midriff. It flailed on its back, screaming piercingly. The two remaining Hexes directed their pulses at the cannon's shield, turning it bright red. Ula was staring at the Sith girl. Amazingly, she hadn't died in the concentrated attack. Even more amazingly, she was still standing, and looking angrier than ever. Whose authority do you recognize? She shouted, lurching headlong into the battle. Whose authority do you recognize? The pitch of her fury was so high that part of Ula actually felt sorry for the Hexes as she landed among them and started swinging. Axe dreamed of a world much larger than normal, where everything seemed strange and mutable and full of threat. She was prone to getting confused, even though she tried very hard to keep up. When she made a mistake, people shouted at her. Giant people with terrifying voices. It hurt her to be yelled at, 
She covered her ears with her hands and tried to run. The voices followed her everywhere, shrieking her name. Cynthia! Cynthia! She woke with a start in the middle of a firefight and couldn't for a moment remember who or where she was. Every cell of her body hurt. Someone was screaming, not her. It was the screaming that had woken her. Only on awakening did it become clear that the voice wasn't coming from a human throat. She remembered. Hutta. The vault. Lima Zandret. Her muscles burned as she willed them into action. Raising her head was like lifting a mountain of pain. She felt a scream of her own boiling inside her. A scream of rage and despair and fear. Containing it hurt her, but at the same time, it gave her strength. She needed every ounce of strength she could muster to survive the next few seconds. Out of everyone in the security airlock, the six-legged droid things had targeted her first of all. We do not recognize your authority. She, however, recognized their defiance. It was the same offered by the crew of the Cinzia when they had been confronted by the smuggler. But whose authority did they recognize? There had to be something or someone behind their murderous natures. Axe raised herself to her knees, and from there, with a supreme effort of will to her feet. The world swayed around her, but the scream was intact and growing. The dark side swelled inside her. The creatures from the vault saw her and instantly turned their blue pulses onto her. She set the scream free. A force barrier surrounded her, bare millimeters from her skin. It shimmered and flickered as wave after wave of energy crashed against it. But it held. It held as long as she screamed, as long as she didn't want to die. The attack ceased, and she staggered back a step, breathing heavily. Her lungs were full of hot smoke and ozone. Her head rang with sound. One of the things attacking her had been blown back by some kind of weapon. The details eluded her. The important thing was that the droids were distracted. This was her chance to find out how tough they really were. Whose authority do you recognize? She shouted, launching herself at the nearest. Its hand weapons were concentrated on the shield of a laser cannon and didn't turn in time. Whose authority do you recognize? The droid thing didn't answer. Her rage spun instants out into hours. First, she tried spearing the hexagonal body with her lightsaber. Some kind of shield appeared between them, bending her blade back at her own arm, forcing her to retreat. Next, she tried blasting it with Sith lightning. The thing's body caught the energy and discharged it from the tips of its limbs. Four sparkling arms lunged at her, forcing her to duck again. She reached out a hand and tried to crush its insides telekinetically. Its honeycomb skeleton resisted more powerfully than Durasteel. The Hex's deadly limbs flailed to impale or shoot her, no matter how hard she strained. They screamed together, locked in a vicious stalemate. She couldn't kill it, and it couldn't kill her. It moved on lean, powerful servos that matched her own strength and agility. Its black sense organs tracked her every movement. But every blue pulse it fired at her was reflected by the force barrier, and every wild slash of its razor-sharp limbs was deflected harmlessly. Then, suddenly, it retreated. Its limbs worried at its metallic skin, as though scratching itself for fleas. She followed it, puzzled and wary. Was this a trap? Some strange new tactic to throw her off her guard? 
She lunged at it, and it backed rapidly away, firing a stream of blue to keep her at bay. Then it stopped, stood its ground, and vanished. For a second, Axe doubted the evidence of her own eyes. How could a droid just disappear? It wasn't possible. A blast of blue energy struck her from the side, out of thin air. And then she realized the droid had activated a camouflage system, reducing its appearance to little more than a blur. It was blending into the background, circling her, trying to shoot her in the back. Axe narrowed her eyes. She didn't know what these things could or couldn't do exactly, but of one thing she was completely sure. One way or another, they were going to die. She was going to destroy them all. Shigar blinked sweat out of his eyes and took the chance to catch his breath. Backup couldn't have come too soon, even if it was in the form of a Sith and a green-skinned Twi'lek at the controls of a laser cannon. He didn't have the energy to complain. With one of the droid things down, speared by the Twi'lek right through the middle, and another occupied by the girl, that left just one for him and Striver to finish off. The Mandalorian hovered over it, peppering it with blaster fire and concussion missiles. Shigar waited for an opening. His comlink buzzed. You should fall back, Lorin told him. We've got it covered now. I don't think it's that simple. But you're hurt. At least have someone look at that for you. He looked down and noticed for the first time that his left arm was covered with blood. He had been completely oblivious to the pain. The laser cannon fired again. This time the droid things were ready. The one Shigar was watching dropped to a crouch and threw up its electromirror shield. The bolt from the cannon knocked it backward, but the bolt itself was reflected into the wall. There it exploded harmlessly, showering two crouching non-combatants with gravel. Striver swooped in on his jetpack and landed next to Shigar. Shigar raised his lightsaber, but the Mandalorian wasn't on the offensive. Tell them to aim for the vault, he said, indicating the comlink. Why? What's in there? Just tell them. Then he lifted off and went back to harrying the target. Again, the laser cannon fired, and again, the bolt exploded into the wall. Shigar relayed the instruction. The door's open, he said, and it's a confined space. Anything left in there will be fried. Lorin passed the message on to the Twi'lek. From his position, Shigar could see his Leku swinging in an instant negative. A brief argument ensued before Lorin came back to him. The Navicomp might still be in there, she said over the comlink. If you can get it out, then they'll fire into the vault. Shigar didn't dismiss the plan out of hand. Far be it from him to aid the Huts in their venal pursuits. For the Republic needed all the help it could get in the war against the Empire. It wasn't his primary mission, but it was still important. All right, he started to say. Then two things happened that put all thought of the Navicomp from his mind. First, the droid thing attacking the Sith girl disappeared. Second, the laser cannon fired again, and the bolt was deflected a third time into the wall. Into the same section of the wall, Shigar realized. The shots weren't ricocheting at random. They were being aimed. Stop firing, he shouted into the comlink. Tell him to stop firing. Lorin tapped her helmet, obviously thinking she had misheard his order. The Sith girl was moving, following a dimple in the air. It fired back at her blue pulses appearing out of nowhere and bouncing off her force barrier. The nearly invisible droid thing was heading for the two non-combatants Shigar had seen earlier. I said stop firing! 
He waved his arms to convey his urgency. Now! The Twi'lek ignored him. Another bolt went into the wall, widening the crater that had already been bored into it. One more shot, Shigar thought in alarm. That was all it would take to ruin everything. The hand weapons weren't strong enough that the droids could shoot their own way out, so they were using the Hut's weaponry instead. Instead of killing them, the laser cannon was going to set them free. Shigar ground his teeth together and sprinted forward. If Lorin couldn't stop the Twi'lek from firing, he would have to throw himself at the camouflage droid and hope to succeed where the Sith had failed. Distantly, he heard the roar of Striver's jetpack pass overhead, but the significance of it eluded him. The shot he had feared came from the laser cannon and bounced off the electromirror shield into the deepening pit in the wall. Long cracks spread out from it, and suddenly, masonry was tumbling down from the wall. The two non-combatants lay directly in the path of the rubble. Shigar had a choice. He could intercept a droid or save the two men. He couldn't do both. There was just a split second in which to decide. Ignoring his pain and exhaustion, he let the force flow through him and did the only thing he could. Yima's teeth were bared in determination as he fired at the cowering Hex. Lorin yelled at him to stop. She had guessed the droid thing's intentions just like Shigar, but the Twi'lek was blindly resolute. He thought he was doing the right thing. He honestly believed that he was on the verge of overpowering his target. He wouldn't listen. She braced herself to physically wrench Yima from the laser cannon's controls, but the rising whine of a jetpack made her look up. Stryber was on his way. He must also have seen what the laser cannon was doing. But he wasn't flying to defend the breach, as Shigar was. He was coming right for her. Barely in time, Lorin realized his intentions. She hurled herself away from the cannon and dived for cover. Behind her, the cannon erupted into a ball of flame. Bits of metal whizzed past her, pinging off her armor. A wave of heat engulfed her. She felt like a rancor had gripped her in its jaws and was shaking her back and forth. When it was over, she looked back at the laser cannon. It was a smoking ruin, destroyed by Striver's missiles. Of Yima, there was no sign at all. Striver dropped heavily next to her. His armor was as blackened and dented as hers. Get into the vault. Destroy everything you find there. What are you going to do? Finish things. I've seen enough. As he spoke, more of the damaged wall fell away, revealing empty space on the other side. The hexes were already heading for the opening, followed by the Sith. Striver grunted and took to the air, activating weapon systems he had not used yet against the droids. Lorin watched him go, thinking hard. It would be time for thinking later, she reminded herself again. The priority was to put an end to the current crisis. Striver wasn't above taking drastic steps to do exactly that. Killing Yima to put the cannon out of action was just one example, and he seemed to know what he was talking about. Looking around her, she found two of poor Patanin's guards and called them to her, moving gingerly through the rubble. They headed for the battle-scarred antechamber and the gaping mouth of the vault. Ula stared up in horror at the descending mass of masonry. There was nothing he or Jet could do to avoid being crushed, and Jet's droid was too far away to intervene. There wasn't time for the last regrets or second thoughts. The law of gravity was unbreakable, even on lawless Hutta. He raised his arms in a futile attempt at self-preservation and closed his eyes. He didn't die. 
His thoughts ground on with increasingly amazed vitality, until eventually it occurred to him that someone had intervened to help him live a little longer. He opened his eyes. The avalanche had been deflected around them by an invisible force. By the force, he realized, as he looked around for the source of his salvation. It was the Jedi, standing with his left hand outstretched in a warding motion and his expression fierce. Ula himself could feel nothing at all arising from that gesture, but he was profoundly grateful that the stone seemed to do so perfectly well. Another rumble came from above. The wall wasn't stable. The Jedi deflected another falling slab, which crashed next to them with a thunderous sound. Come on, said Jet, tugging at his arm. I think it's time we found somewhere else to stand. Ula wholeheartedly agreed. Conflicted but grateful, he nodded his thanks at the Jedi and scurried with Jet out of the danger zone. Jet was leading them toward what had once been the external exit to the security airlock, but was now a path cleared through mountains of rubble. Jet's droid was waiting for him there, waving his arms. The stubby barrel of the laser cannon protruded from between two large slabs. Behind it, Ula could see Loren and Yima fighting over the controls. Then Stryver swooped in, firing at the cannon. Loren jumped, or was thrown clear, and Ula's heart hammered in his chest. Was she hurt? Could he help? Jet pulled him down as the cannon exploded and shrapnel pinged around them. He belatedly covered his head with his hands, though he had spent the last hour in that position. This wasn't becoming of an Imperial operative, he told himself, weary of his own cowardice. He had once had aspirations of being a cipher agent, whose job was to negotiate exactly such situations. Here, he was right in the thick of things. And what was he doing? When he wasn't being saved by Jedi, he was cowering and whimpering at the slightest noise. It simply wouldn't do. The droids were busy with Striver, Shigar, and the Sith. The way into the antechamber was wide open. I'm going to see what's in there, he said. Coming? Jet looked at him as though he had gone stark staring mad. You can't be serious. Why wouldn't I be? This is my chance to get in before anyone else does. Isn't that cheating? If it is, I'm not the only one. Look! He gripped Jet by the shoulder. The Rin's moving. I have to stop the Republic from getting there first. Jet smiled tightly at that. I think you mean the Imperials, my friend. Ula flushed. Yes. Yes, of course. That's exactly what I meant. Envoy Nervin is over there. I don't think he cares much either way. Jet pointed at a body so badly crushed that Ula couldn't identify it. Ula winced and averted his eyes. Regardless, I'm going. You can come if you want. I don't care. All right, all right. But keep your head down. Jet wiped his palms on his dusty trousers and took the lead, as if by doing so, he might increase the chances of either of them returning alive. The wall collapsed despite the Jedi's best efforts to prop it up. Fresh air rolled in on a wave of dust and ash. Axe's nearly invisible droid hopped agilely from outcrop to outcrop toward the opening. In two leaps, it reached the hole and jumped into the light of the outside world. The droid following in its wake fired at her. Its pulses had turned purple somehow, and now packed a more powerful punch. She rolled, keeping her shield intact, and reflected the pulses back at it. More dust went up, and the droid vanished into the cloud. 
She didn't need to use the force to know that it had followed in its siblings' footsteps. Striver was hot on their heels, jetpack blazing. Axe risked being burned in his afterwash she was following so close behind him. The Jedi followed her, looking worn out and battered. She considered turning on him and striking him down, taking the chance to finish what they had started earlier. But more important concerns drove her now. She could hear the droids screeching as they burst into the unsuspecting populace of Tassar Barisha's palace. The sound of their voices fueled her desire to destroy them, to see them all very, very dead. Evokai and other aliens were running everywhere, fleeing both the droids and the Mandalorian firing at them. His concussion missiles brought down ceilings and walls in the droids' path, stopping them from getting too far ahead. They fired back at him, causing still more collateral damage. If this kept up, Axe thought, it wouldn't be long before Tassavarisha's entire palace was destroyed. She couldn't find it in her heart to care. When Striver was within range, he used his net launcher to bring the semi-visible droid down. He hadn't tried this tactic before, she noted. Furthermore, the net was different from the one he had used on her. Why he had changed his tactics was, however, less important at the moment than the fact that they were working. The net's mesh was electrified and delivered a powerful pulse of energy to the droid thing's silver skin. The six-legged creature spasms and twitched, shedding sparks into everything it touched. Its keening took on a new, desperate note as its camouflage failed. Act prepared to rush in and finish it off. Then she stopped. What am I doing? The answer took surprisingly long to come. This wasn't her fight. Unless one of the droids was carrying the Navicomp, she had nothing to gain by killing them. Revenge might seem sweet at that moment, but she would be full of regret later if attaining it meant failing in her mission. Darth Kratos would make sure of that. The Cinzia, Lemazandrit, they were what mattered. The Jedi rushed past her, lightsaber upraised. Let him finish off the fallen droid, Axe decided. To him could go that minor spoil. Then he and Striver could surely finish off the one droid left to deal with on their own. Unnoticed by either of them, she turned and headed back to the security airlock. Shigar stabbed down into the guts of the fallen droid, pressing hard to penetrate the surprisingly tough metal of its exoskeleton. Its legs strained against the net, failing either to fire at him or to form its electromirror defense. Sparks still discharged all around him, and Shigar was careful not to be either burned or shocked. As it was, the hairs of his arms were standing on end, electrified even along the shaft of his lightsaber. The droid's gleaming sense organs turned matte black when it died. It slumped back with a metallic rattle, and its legs hung limp. Still, Shigar worked through its body, making sure nothing survived. The case split open, spilling several white, shell-like hemispheres. Fearing they might create some kind of last-minute attack, Shigar speared them, too. They hissed and collapsed, oozing a dark red liquid. When he was absolutely positive the droid had no life left, he stepped away and hurried after Striver. The final droid was peppering the Mandalorian with its newly potent pulses, keeping well out of range of his net launcher. Striver, in turn, had managed to maneuver it into a cul-de-sac and pinned it between him and a trio of Nikto security guards. Their blasters were ineffectual against the thing's armor, but they had a distracting effect. 
Shigar came up behind the Mandalorian and considered how best he could help. The roof was low and much less sturdy than that of the security airlock. Reaching out through the force, he loosened the key beam and brought a shower of bricks and ceiling tiles down onto the droid. The distraction was sufficient for Striver to get close enough to cast the net. The droid went down with a shriek of pain and anger. Striver pumped three concussion grenades into its chest, not caring about the Nikto standing nearby. Shigar pushed past him to finish off the droid himself before anyone else could get hurt. Prior to delivering the killing blow, he tried talking to it. Why are you fighting? We do not recognize. You're a combat droid. You must have core protocols. Not recognize here. Who is your commander? Your maker. Striver leaned past him and plunged his collapsible shock stave into the thing's chest. Its legs flailed, and it squealed so piteously that Chigar almost felt sorry for it. Then its vocabulator function degraded, and its voice became little more than piercing electronic tones. He was glad when it finally fell silent. His comlink buzzed. Chigar, I'm in the vault, said Loren. You need to see this. What is it? I don't know. It... With a blast of static, the comlink went dead. Shigar turned and ran back the way he had... Striver's massive form five long steps ahead of him. Lorin stepped gingerly onto the pool of molten metal that had once been the vault's door. It was still hot. She could feel the heat even through her insulated boots. But it was solid, and her soles held. The body of the droid killed by the cannon lay nearby... Its eight legs splayed out, and its double body inert. She quickly surveyed the antechamber and found it to be empty. What had once been white walls were now blackened and scarred, but the other three vaults remained tightly sealed. There was a depression in the center of the room that looked like a tunnel mouth. Re-solidified ferrocrete sealed it shut, however, followed by a layer of molten door metal. Satisfied that nothing was going to jump her from behind, Lorin approached the door itself. Her rifle was cocked and ready, and she had armed backup. The ten and squad members were tight-lipped and efficient. Most important, they were following her orders. The interior of the vault was lit by a single flickering globe. Via the flashes of light it provided, she at last saw with her own eyes the object Patanen had described. A low-domed cylinder made of gleaming silver... The image of a battle-scarred soldier standing low behind her weapon was reflected in its curved front. In the irregular light, she looked both menacing and hesitant. Gesturing economically, she ordered Patanen's squad members in past her. They went in separate directions, coming around the object to cover it from every angle. One of them stepped on a long glass tube that shattered with an alarming sound. Nothing sinister, she noted with relief. There was no sign of the Navicomp. Destroy everything you find, Striver had told her. And she had come armed with grenades to do just that. But she wasn't about to do anything rash. Who knew what valuable information might disappear forever if she acted precipitously? She may have been dumped from the Republic Special Forces, but that didn't mean she was about to take orders from a Mandalorian without question. Lorin came forward a step. The toe of her boot caught on something, and when she looked down, she saw more of the shining silver threads running across her path. 
It came to her in a flash what they might be, and she reached for her comlink to call Shigar. With a crack, the top of the silver object snapped open. From it issued another droid. She dropped the comlink and fell to one knee, her rifle rising to fire. The droid was coming right for her, legs flailing and screeching like a mad thing. Its wild shape was frozen in a flash of light, silhouetted like a bug on a window. She registered five arms of varying length and patches in its body that light shone right through. The shots from her rifle tore more holes in its hide and knocked it backward. It flailed and screamed. She backed away, her heart pounding, pouring round after round into the droid and the object from which it had emerged. This droid wasn't entirely complete. That much was obvious, even from the brief glimpse she received. If it had been, she'd be dead now. It was new, made from scratch inside the object pulled from the Cinzia, as the others had been. The droid stopped moving. She signaled for a ceasefire and was grateful for the sudden silence. The air was thick with smoke and static discharges. The tick-ticking of cooling metal was the only sound. She moved closer to the blaster-scarred droid and the object that had made it. Standing warily over the ladder, she pointed her rifle into its gaping maw and peered inside. She saw a mass of silver threads and slender manipulators still moving despite the damage inflicted upon it. She fired two shots into the maw, and the swirling mass grew frantic. Half a droid foreleg appeared, stunted and deformed. A black sense organ came and went. Lorin knew what it was now. It was a compact droid factory, and it had been busy ever since the huts placed it here, sending out tiny threads in search of metals and power, infiltrating security systems, and taking everything it needed. Hence the threads she and Shigar had stumbled across under the vaults. Hence the lack of alarms. She bet herself that if she took a knife to the metal walls of the safe, she would find them barely flimsy thin. Enough to fool a casual glance, but otherwise utterly plundered, dissolved, and removed, ion by ion, for use in the factory's secret work. Building vicious, determined, reticent droids that wouldn't take orders. Why? That was a whole other mystery. But the thing was still moving, still functioning. Given enough time, she bet it would repair itself and start all over again. No wonder Striver wanted it destroyed. She picked up the comlink. Shigar, I'm in the vault, she told him. You need to see this. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> Something red flashed in front of her eyes. A searing pain struck the hand holding her comlink. She stared down in horror at the terrible cauterized wound where her fingers had once been. Over the humming of her crimson lightsaber, the Sith said, Give me the Navicom. Or it'll be your head you lose next. Ula craned to see what was going on inside the vault. He and Jet stood in the antechamber and had been just about to venture in after Lorin when the sound of blaster fire brought them up short. Bright flashes of light lit up the cramped space. Lorin and her two companions were shooting at something. But what? Not another droid, surely. Ula and Jet dived for cover just in case, and kept their heads down until the rattle of weapons fire died away. Ula looked up. He could just see Lorin's silhouette leaning over the object Yima had shown him. Its top was open, and she fired twice into it. He was about to clamber to his feet when his eyes caught something out of place among the bits of stone and other rubble on the floor.
It was the Navicom. One of the hexes must have knocked it out when they emerged to do battle. He scrambled for it before someone else saw and took it. Its transparisteel container was intact, and the device itself looked no worse than it had before. A feeling of triumph filled him. If he could open the case and get the thing itself free, he could smuggle it under his cloak without anyone else seeing. But first, he had to distract Jet. If the smuggler saw it, there was bound to be another fight over it. The whole extended disaster could start all over again. Footsteps crunched behind him, and he turned, fearing that his find had already been discovered. It was the red-haired Sith. She was heading for the vault, not him. His relief was short-lived. The Sith's lightsaber flashed, and the Rin gasped with pain. Give me the Navicomp, or it'll be your head you lose next. Ula froze in horror. I don't have it, Lorin said, voice tight. I don't believe you. One of Lorin's companions fired at the Sith. She easily deflected the bolt back into his throat. He went down kicking, then fell still. I'm telling the truth. I'll count to five. Then I'll start hacking up your friend here. And then it'll be your head. I promise. The Sith approached the last surviving member of Ula's security detail. He nervously away. One. The box containing the Navicomp was in Ula's possession. All he had to do was surrender it to the Sith, and Lorin would be saved. And he would safely deliver the information to the Empire. It was a simple solution to all his problems. Two. But Ula couldn't move. The Sith and the Empire weren't the same thing. No, to trillions, they were inseparable. The Emperor himself was the Sith to whom all others deferred. But to him, they were very different. On the one hand, the Empire offered a society of rules and clearly defined justice that could, if allowed to do so, bring peace and prosperity to every planet in the galaxy. On the other, oppression and constant conflict. Could he in good conscience give any advantage to the followers of the latter? Would Lorin want him to? Three. If only he could deliver the Navicomp to the Minister of Logistics. With it in her hand, she could surely find a way to turn it to their advantage. The Empire was so huge, it wouldn't miss this world's resources, for all the squabbling over them now. All Ula wanted was the chance to prove the rightness of his principles. He didn't mind the existence of the Sith, but they shouldn't be allowed to run roughshod over everyone else. Four... Yet there was no point dreaming. The Minister of Logistics might have been in another universe entirely. He could no more give her this vital piece in the puzzle than he could stand up to the Sith himself and survive. He was just a pawn in a game much larger than he could imagine. He was insignificant and disposable. How foolish to think that he could ever have changed the way this would turn out. The Navicomp had been earmarked for the Sith the very moment she arrived. Five! The Sith moved in to start slashing. Wait! He called out. All eyes turned to him. The Sith glared at him with hateful eyes. Jet looked as shocked, as though Ula had sprouted wings and flown up to the ceiling. Lorin's expression was hidden by her helmet, and that was the one he most wanted to see. Here, he told the Sith, holding up the Navicomp. Take it! Just leave her alone! The girl's expression became hungry triumphant. Ula didn't want to get any closer to that blade than he had to. He hefted the box and tossed it to her. 
at the height of its arc. A gleaming web reached in and snatched the box clean out of the air. What? Ula spun around. The Mandalorian caught the box neatly in one hand and tossed something back to Ula in return. He caught it automatically. It was a heavy metal sphere with a blinking red light. No! screamed the Sith, robbed of her prize. Stryver was already moving, rising up on his jetpack and heading for the exit. Chuck it! yelled Jet to Ula. That's a thermal detonator! Ula hurled the sphere away from him as hard as he could. It went up and kept going up as Shigar the Jedi used the force to sweep it away. The tactic wasn't entirely defensive. The detonator exploded high in the creaking scaffolding that had once been the security airlock's roof, directly above Stryver's escape route. The statue of Tassar Barish toppled and fell. Yet another avalanche came crashing down after it, burying the Mandalorian and a herd of palace guards that had come to quell the disturbance. The floor gave way and kept giving way as Stryver fired downward, riding the tide of collapse into the palace's deeper levels. Snarling, the Sith girl went after him, determined not to lose her prize. She vanished into the Royal of Stone and Ferrocrete and didn't reappear. Ula took one step toward Lorin, but Shigar beat him to it. Are you all right? The Jedi asked her. She was leaning against the outside of the vault with her crippled left hand compressed under her armpit. With her right hand, she tugged off her helmet. Her face was white and pinched. I'll live she said. Meanwhile, it's not over. Striver will head for his ship first chance he gets. You have to cut him off and get the Navicomp back any way you can. Do you think you can do that without me? Shigar nodded, tight-lipped, and lopped off across the shattered floor to the hole in the wall, leaping gracefully from girder to girder. Lorin held her grin until Shigar was out of sight. Then she slumped in pain. Ula's pain was different, but no less real. It was clear that Lorin had a close connection with Shigar. The Jedi even had tattoos similar to hers. It was some kind of cultural thing, surely. Perhaps they were married. The thought made his chest ache. He knew it was ridiculous to feel this way. He knew it was based on nothing at all. He knew he had built it all up in his own head, and that made him an idiot of the highest order. He had more important things to worry about than this. The battle for the Navikov was over. Tassabarish's palace security forces would be converging on the site to clean up and make accusations. He didn't want to be there when that happened. His loyalties were so compromised, he wasn't sure he could convince anyone that he wasn't guilty of everything. Striver would be going for his ship, like she said, he told Jet. But he's going the wrong way around. I'll head him off and see if I can salvage something. Tell her... Tell the others I'll meet them at the shuttle. The smuggler studied him closely, and then simply said, All right, mate. I might need a lift myself. Isn't your ship? Impounded and crewless, he shrugged. And what's a freight captain without his ship? Guess I'd better start thinking about a normal job. Ula patted him on the shoulder with what he hoped was appropriate bonhomie, because it was utterly genuine. A normal job. Those three words had struck him with the force of one of Striver's thermal detonators. He hurried off, following with infinitely greater clumsiness Shigar's route across the shattered floor. He ignored the shouts and screams coming from the levels below. He ignored the shaking of his hands. He kept his mind firmly on its goal. 
There was an Imperial ship in the palace's dock. That was where he was headed. If he could get there before it left, he could reveal his true identity and claim amnesty. He could escape with the Sith and the Navicomp when she returned from hunting Striver, and he could finally report to his superior. He could relax the disguise and speak freely without lies or deceptions. He could be himself. And then, a normal job? Nothing at that moment appealed to him more. Holy ravioli, we just got a taste of pure awesomeness. In this breathtaking journey that was part five, we were transported to a realm beyond our wildest dreams. Trust me, the Star Wars universe just unfolded before our very eyes. The epic possibilities that lie ahead are just simply mind-boggling. But before we can get to the next episode, we have to finish this one. So let's take a moment to unveil the highly anticipated quote of this part. And this episode's quote comes to us from the one and only Michael Phelps. He said the only way to find our limits is to push past them. Imagine this. You have dreams, aspirations, and goals that you want to achieve. Maybe it's becoming an accomplished musician, an exceptional athlete, or a successful entrepreneur. But here's the thing. Sometimes we're not aware of the incredible potential we possess until we push ourselves beyond what we think we are capable of. That's where the magic happens, where we discover our true limits. You see, our comfort zone is like a cozy bubble that keeps us safe and secure. Inside that bubble, we feel comfortable, unchallenged, and content. But if we want to truly grow, if we want to unearth our hidden abilities and achieve remarkable things, we must venture beyond that bubble. Think of it as starting a thrilling adventure. When you step outside that comfort zone and take on new challenges, you start to push the boundaries of what you believe you can do. It may feel uncomfortable at first, even scary, but it's in those moments of discomfort and fear that we uncover our untapped potential. Dare to step outside your comfort zone, for it is in those daring moments that you will truly discover your extraordinary potential. And that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part five as much as I did, and I hope you'll join me next time for more excitement and adventures. And until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>